Before we get started, I want to give a shout out to another podcast in the mobility space that I think you'll enjoy, the Rideshare Guy podcast by Harry Campbell. Harry has become a trusted expert on all things rideshare, and he may be the only person ever to have driven for Uber and also interviewed Uber's CEO on a podcast. On the Rideshare Guy podcast, Harry interviews a wide range of industry and thought leaders in the rideshare and mobility space. You can find and subscribe to the Rideshare Guy podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. This is Smarter Cars, a podcast about autonomous vehicles and the future of transportation. Welcome to season four. This is your host, Michelle Kairouz. In this episode, we talk with Jeffrey Tumlin, the brand new head of the San Francisco Municipal Transportation Agency. The SFMTA is responsible for the management of all ground transportation in San Francisco, which includes public transit, as well as streets, parking, traffic, walking, cycling, and micromobility. San Francisco has been ground zero for many of the new technologies in transportation. We talk with Jeffrey about the challenges and potential solutions as he starts his tenure as head of the SFMTA. Jeff, welcome to the show. Good morning. Happy to be here. San Francisco has been ground zero for many of the new technologies and ideas around transportation in the past decade. And it's also a city that's exploded in growth. As you start this new job, what are some of the key challenges you see for the city's transportation system in the decade ahead? We have so many challenges. Probably foremost among our challenges is the fact that as San Francisco grows, we need our streets to move more people and our streets are not getting any wider. So our challenge is figuring out how do we balance traveler convenience against system efficiency. And this is where new mobility technology can either help us or hurt us. San Francisco MTA runs both the streets of San Francisco in terms of parking and traffic and cycling and things like that, as well as the public transit system. This seems like a unique position for you to change the way the streets are configured kind of hand-in-hand with transit improvements. How are you thinking about that? We are so fortunate that we have both streets and transit in our agency because it allows me the ability to manage the overall transportation system for the public good. And having transit in-house, which is really our most space-efficient mode of transportation, we can make changes to the mobility system that prioritize the movement of people rather than just focusing on the movement of vehicles. So it's a, it's a really powerful partnership that we've got uh, that very few cities around the world have. You mentioned the fundamental problem that there's limited amount of space on our streets and as we grow and have more people and vehicles and types of travel, there's really a, a space constraint problem. Can you tell us a little bit about this road geometry and how you're thinking about it in terms of moving people instead of just vehicles? Uh, I'm glad you mentioned the word geometry because that is the simplest and most profound driver of decision-making for a transportation agency. So I'm not getting streets that are any wider and I've got to move more people. So that means moving more people in the same amount of space 
And that means prioritizing the modes of transportation that are the most space efficient. Cars are phenomenally convenient, but it takes up 10 times as much roadway space to move somebody in a car than it does to move them on a bike or on a bus or on micromobility for that matter. So in order for uh, it to be possible for people to be able to drive when they need to drive, the SFMTA needs to make it more convenient for the rest of us to do something other than drive. I think people hear about road geometry and they think about roads as a a zero-sum game and they think, well, if you're prioritizing buses and bikes, you're not prioritizing me trying to drive in my car and this is a one-to-one zero-sum problem. But I actually think people discount the fact that if you improve service for buses and if you encourage people to ride micromobility, it actually reduces the number of cars. And so it, in some ways, it can also help car traffic. Is that fair? Well, and congestion operates on a 10% margin. So any street that is gridlocked where none of the vehicles are moving, I don't need to get everyone out of their cars. I just need to convince 10% of those motorists to do something else to travel at a different time, to take a different street, or to take a more efficient mode of transportation. You remove 10% of the congested cars and traffic flows smoothly again. So it's, the work is not that hard. And again, I don't need to get everyone to, who's doing one thing to do something else. I just need to convince 10% of San Franciscans. And 10% of San Franciscans will do any crazy thing. That's fair. You mentioned there are two ways to improve road geometry. One is getting people to ride in a vehicle like a large muni bus that carries a lot of people per square feet. And the other is to get people to use really small vehicles like micromobility or walking or or biking. So let's talk about, about each of those. First, let's talk about public buses and light rail in the city. I think many cities and transit advocates have spent decades saying to commuters, ride the bus, stop driving your personal automobile, and it seems like none of it has worked. I think transit ridership has declined in almost every city in America. So it seems like the only way to change that is to make transit great to make it attractive. So what are some of your ideas to really improve the experience for riders to make them want to take buses or or light rail in the city? So I think it's learning from our successes here in San Francisco. When you look at our transit ridership data, the data is quite interesting. So we're having a slight decline in transit ridership, which is better than most cities in the United States. But as we look in more detail at the data, what we find is that the transit lines where Muni has made a major investment in speed, reliability, and capacity, ridership is up significantly. So the Five Fulton route, uh, for example, which uh, Muni has been working on for uh, a couple of years now, has extraordinary results from the, the speed and reliability improvements that Muni has made, as well as the Five Rapid. So we, we improved travel time by about 12% on the five, and ridership increased by 17%. In addition, cut collisions by about 40% by just making the, the street work better. 
and make um, the travel more predictable for all users on Fulton Street. It's an extraordinary success, and the same is true in our work on Mission Street, our upcoming work on Terravelle. We're hoping to get similar results, the work that we've done on San Bruno Avenue. So I think our task is to learn from the success of our past transit improvement projects, but more importantly, learn from the success of some of our bikeway improvement projects, which we have implemented extraordinarily quickly. So what I want to do is to take all the talent that is working on our bike improvement projects uh, and put them to work on the thousand small changes that are necessary to make Muni fast, frequent, and reliable. So talk about what the changes are that make the buses move faster and become, therefore, more reliable. Is it primarily giving buses their own lane, a dedicated red lane? Well, we start by collecting a lot of data on where exactly are the buses running into trouble and what are all of the sources of delay. So if buses are experiencing recurring congestion-related delay, then yes, transit-only lanes are an important tool, and we are expanding those all over the city and getting extraordinarily positive results from that. But buses also get stuck at traffic lights, so doing uh, transit signal priority treatments at intersections so that um, you don't stop a bus with 120 people on board in order to let you know, two people in a car uh, cross on a cross street. Similarly, we have buses delayed at stops. So we're doing a lot of improvements at our bus stops to make boarding faster and safer for our passengers, including being the first agency uh, in the country to open all doors and to let passengers get on and off at the back door by switching to proof of payment. We're also trying to work on our fare policy so that people don't have to fumble with cash at the front of the bus. That's a source of delay. And we're also being very careful about thinking about bus stop spacing. So there's a difficult optimization exercise around how close together bus stops go. So we want to have them be close enough that they're convenient for people to walk to the bus stop, um, particularly in our, hilly, in our hilly city, while at the same time not having the bus have to stop every minute and delaying passengers on board. So in order to make the buses work, there's no silver bullet. It is really just being very clear about all of the sources of delay and reliability problems and tackling every single one of them. So let's talk a little bit about micromobility and active modes of transportation. It seems like the theory behind micromobility that a small vehicle to carry one person a short distance is more efficient than a car should be very attractive to cities. But San Francisco has really limited the number of dockless bikes and scooters in the city so far. How are you thinking about these permit programs going forward? So what we want to do is take the time to be clear about what San Francisco values are with regard to the transportation system, to define for mobility technology companies the problems that we're trying to solve. Um, and to also be really clear about what are the potential positive outcomes that we want regulation to support and the potential negative outcomes that we want to regulate against. So here in San Francisco, we've taken a, a fairly conservative approach compared to some of our partners like in Austin or even San Jose that have um, been much bolder about embracing micromobility. 
We've been a little slower to make sure that we understand the potential unintended negative consequences, like writing on the sidewalk, like unstable uh, micromobility devices that tip over and create tripping hazards for pedestrians or obstruct people who are in wheelchairs. So by going slower, we've been able to, for example, require tethering, which has helped to solve the scooter tipping over problem, as well as reducing the rate of theft and scooters being tossed into the bay. So it's benefited both us and the providers. And it's also allowed us to gain acceptance from some of our more conservative policymakers who aren't interested in a lot of change in the mobility space. So by going slower, it's allowed us, I think, to have a program that makes more sense and has more political support. And that has allowed us uh, just this month to have a dramatic increase in the number of scooters and docked and dockless bikes out there on the street. So you should be seeing a lot more of them. Well, it seems like the challenges you're identifying there are really giving them a place to ride and a place to park. And it seems like a lot of those challenges come from the fact that there really isn't a place where folks can ride safely in the city given the competition for space on the street and the fact that we don't want folks to ride them on the sidewalk. Let's talk about the infrastructure there. Uh, I think most people feel that you really need a protected lane for cyclists and micromobility to improve safety in the city. How are you thinking about that infrastructure as we move forward? So when we go and look at cities around the world, or even our own experience here in San Francisco, if we want bikes and other forms of micromobility to actually be well used and to take advantage of their potential, it's really clear the elements that are necessary. And one of the most important elements is a safe, protected place to ride in that also gets all of the bikes and scooters off the sidewalk as well. So. Over the last year, and very much so in the coming 12 months, San Francisco has been investing heavily in protected bike lanes, which are really actually protected micromobility lanes for scooters and skateboards and dockless bikes and docked bikes and all of those small wheeled devices. Um, we're creating a safe and very efficient space for those, those vehicles to be used in. Just this week, we're working on completing protected bike lanes the entire length of Fifth Street through South of Market. Three weeks ago, at a hearing for District 6, we got approval to move forward on upgrading and extending and improving the protected bike lanes on the entire length of Howard, Folsom, 7th, uh, and 8th. At the end of this month, we are permanently closing Market Street to cars east of 10th Street. We're also talking now with our partners at the Recreation Parks Department about how do we make Golden Gate Park a respite from fear of traffic violence. So in the coming 18 months, San Francisco will have one of the most extensive, protected, integrated micromobility lane networks in the United States. We're, we still have a lot of work to go to, uh, a lot of work to do in order to catch up with you know, global standards um, and achieve the kind of results that we're seeing, not only in cities like Copenhagen and Amsterdam, but cities like Paris or Oslo, uh, or even some of the innovation that we're seeing in other U.S. cities like Seattle. That's terrific. I think 
cycling and micromobility advocates were really pleased to see the quick build projects and the increased focus on building out a network all at once. It seems like doing a few blocks here and a few blocks there doesn't really have the impact that you would want to see. So it's terrific to see the city moving more quickly in that area. It seems like one of the barriers to installing the protected lanes has been a political controversy and community engagement and sort of the necessary processes that the city engages in. How are you thinking about community engagement as you try to make these changes to the streetscape in San Francisco? So one of the lessons that we've had from our quick build process is the importance of community engagement and the importance of moving quickly along with your community engagement. So historically, Transportation projects in San Francisco took years and years and years and years to implement. And so the the gap between when you did your initial community engagement and then when you went out to go build the project was years. And so people forgot and people moved away and projects got relitigated over and over and over again. With our quick builds, what we're doing is going out and doing direct engagement with the affected community then within a matter of weeks, going out and doing temporary installations to test our ideas, both to help us perfect the design, um, but also to learn from the community about unintended consequences that we didn't realize the first time, so we can correct for those. But also getting community members comfortable that, you know, some of these ideas are actually, you know, maybe good ideas. So. What we do then is we put in a temporary measure, we collect information, we make corrections, and then over time we slowly upgrade uh, those facilities with more permanent uh, materials. This has been incredibly effective, not only from getting stuff done quickly uh, perspective, but incredibly effective way of engaging the community and building trust um, with San Franciscans. And that's allowed us then to go and do more projects. I want to do the same thing on the transit side as well. One of the controversial areas of changing things on the street has always been parking. And I'm wondering how you're thinking about street parking as we move forward in this decade. It feels like there's a little bit of a shift in how San Franciscans are getting around. And maybe that's an opportunity to start removing street parking and using that very limited space on our streets for more productive uses. So the first place that we started in San Francisco with the SF Park program was recognizing that our job as an agency is to manage on-street parking so that motorists can find a space when they need one, uh, particularly in our neighborhood commercial districts. And that the parking problem in San Francisco was not a parking supply problem, but rather a parking management problem. So as the SFMTA has gotten better about managing parking in our commercial districts, many uh, merchants and motorists have seen that the parking demand is flexible and that we can continue to manage the situation even as a result of supply change in order to continue to guarantee that those motorists who need to drive can easily find a parking space. Moreover, we're also finding that with Uber and Lyft, it's not necessary to drive yourself. In fact, if you want to 
go out and have a great time in the evening in San Francisco, it's a lot better to let somebody else do the driving. The result of that is we're seeing year-over-year pretty steady declines in parking demand, even as economic activity increases and population employment increases in San Francisco. And so in order to keep our off-street garages full, which are increasingly empty, it's actually beneficial to ratchet down some of the on-street supply in places where it is not essential. Uh, now, that means being very careful about making sure that loading and pickup and drop-offs can still occur. It also means paying very careful attention to our small businesses, particularly given the fact that the transportation system is really dependent upon small business success, making sure that the needs of daily life are available within walking distance in all of our neighborhoods. I don't want people driving to Saramonte because uh, small businesses are failing um, in our neighborhood commercial districts. It's interesting when you think about street parking and the fact that garages are fairly empty. I mean, I've noticed just in the years of working in the financial district that it's much easier to get a parking spot in a garage these days. How can we increase the uses of our curb space in places like the financial district and the downtown core and south of market in order to facilitate these new uses that you're talking about, whether it's being dropped off by an Uber and Lyft, Amazon deliveries, uh, food deliveries, other, other uses of the curb that we're seeing. I'm glad you bring that up. The curb is becoming um, increasingly important even if it is less important for car storage. Um, all of those services, you know, whether it's you know, Amazon or Uber, those are increasing. And with autonomous vehicles, parking goes away as a land use, but curbside pickup and drop-off increases dramatically. So we're putting the regulatory guidelines in place for how we manage the curb for the highest public good and understanding that we're going to need to be making continual adjustments to the way we manage the curb as technology changes and as travel patterns change. Super important. And one of the places to start is to eliminate that conflict between curbside pickup and drop-off and people using micromobility. Um, and that means switching the location of the bikeway and the parking lane, reversing that arrangement in order to reduce conflict. If you wanted to remove street parking in the financial district and south of market and take that space for bus lanes and for protected micromobility lanes, what would it take to make that happen? Well, we're doing a lot of that. We just eliminated a lot of parking on Fifth Street in order to accommodate the protected bikeways. And that was a lot of work, um, talking to every merchant along the street about what their needs were, particularly for commercial loading uh, and pickup and drop-off, including for you know, big institutions like the Nordstrom Ballet at the Westfield Mall downtown. So the process involves making sure that we understand what the real needs are. And the process also involves a political process, making sure that our district-oriented Board of Supervisors members are kept closely informed and where they can guide us around how to strike the compromises in a way that truly meets the needs of each of our neighborhoods. So if you get the process right, it's becoming increasingly easier to ask questions that even five years ago we, we couldn't really ask. 
like, is this parking really needed? Or is there a higher and better use for this limited street space than the storage of private cars? You mentioned autonomous vehicles, and certainly with the increase in use of Uber and Lyft, as people project forward and think about how that might increase going forward, there are discussions around uh, road pricing in various cities around the country, New York, L.A. How is San Francisco thinking about uh, charging for car use on our roads going forward? So the San Francisco County Transportation Agency, our our sister agency, and the County Congestion Management Agency is currently leading a study on downtown congestion pricing, and there's a whole website on that. And in full disclosure, when I was in my consulting life before uh, starting this job, I was the project manager for that effort. So you can best talk to them about the details of that study. What I can say is that Congestion is much better seen as an economic problem than an infrastructure problem. Congestion is simply what happens when the demand for mobility equals the supply. Um, While in the United States, um, every city in the country has tried multiple times to use infrastructure to solve congestion, it has never once worked. The only way to solve congestion problems is through economic solutions. And that means either destroying your regional economy, like Detroit did, or using price rather than time to balance supply and demand. So if we want to solve congestion in San Francisco, there is only one way, and that is through price. And the challenge then becomes, how can you use mobility pricing not just to create more convenience for the wealthy, but rather to advance equity and to advance small business success? And those are the questions that the TA is now asking um, in their downtown congestion pricing study. We at the SFMTA are fully supportive. We know it's the only thing that will move the needle on congestion and create the revenue that we would need in order to dramatically upgrade service to make sure that everyone can move, particularly those with the fewest choices. It's interesting There's been a lot of criticism of Uber and Lyft as causing traffic in cities. But when you look at the overall numbers, it's still overwhelmingly the case that traffic is caused by private car use, including individuals driving their own cars. So when you think about uh, road pricing, do you see it as the case that we should charge all cars fairly for the space they're using versus targeting uh, ride services? So if we want to make a difference on congestion, we absolutely need to charge all the users uh, of of road space. But I'd like to um, do that in a more sophisticated way than just pricing the use of roads uh, in a fixed manner. So for Uber and Lyft, the thing that I would be most interested in charging for is not the use of Uber and Lyft, but the waste of space. So charging, I should be able to charge Uber and Lyft more when they're driving around empty waiting for a fare. And ideally, I'd be able to charge for empty seat miles. Um, more importantly, when Uber and Lyft are used for you know, shift workers in the restaurant industry that get off work at 2.30 in the morning, 
if somebody's getting off work at 2.30 in the morning and going home to the Bayview, that's a really productive use of Uber and Lyft compared to somebody who is using it alone, paralleling the 38 Geary just because they want 300 square feet of roadway space as opposed to two and a half square feet of roadway space. So there are, there are ways of using ride hail services that are um, really, really valuable for the transportation system. And there are ways of using ride hail that um, simply worsen the efficiency of the system for the convenience of the rider. So I'd love for us to be thinking about what are the most productive use cases of ride hail um, and even consider subsidizing those uh, and funding that through um, high fees on uses of Uber and Lyft that really damage the efficiency um, of the transportation system when we need the greatest efficiency. So if you were pricing the road and charging people for vehicle miles traveled, you might have surge pricing for the road where traveling in congested areas at peak commute times when someone could have been riding a bus or a more using micromobility or doing something more efficient might be a way to penalize that use of a car versus the two in the morning uh, use of it. That's right. And like more importantly, I charge San Franciscans $2.50 for two square feet of space on crowded buses in the peak. What if instead of charging people $2.50 for two square feet, what if we paid them $5 for making more efficient use of our mobility system? And what if I paid for that by charging those who were taking 300 square feet of roadway space for their convenience? How do you think about some of the technology challenges around road pricing? It seems like the technology has gotten so much better than it was five or 10 years ago, even when people were considering uh, road pricing options. How, how do you think about the technology challenge? So there's a lot of technology challenges around privacy when we start trying to manage the system in more sophisticated ways that focus on uh, person efficiency rather than on vehicles. Um, so if I want data about empty seats, um, I need to uh, have more data about people than many folks are gonna be comfortable with. So making sure that as an agency, we never collect personally identifiable information, but that we collect data that is enough to be good managers of the overall system. That's, that's going to be an ongoing challenge that we're going to have to face um, over the next couple of years. What is the right amount of information to collect and how do we ensure that we maintain the privacy of individuals using the mobility system while making the mobility system more efficient? There's been some cities around the world who have tried subscription services sometimes it's called mobility as a service offerings, that try to create a monthly subscription that involves public transit as well as some amount of micromobility or ride hail service and packaging it together to encourage multimodal travel. Is San Francisco thinking about working with any private providers or coming up with a package on its own, perhaps with the bus credits you mentioned? 
to encourage multimodal travel in the city? So one of the problems that we have in San Francisco is that the state and federal governments aren't thinking along the lines of more efficient urban travel. And so we don't have the regulatory authority in order to facilitate mobility as a service. For example, in order to make mobility as a service really work, um, we need there to be open APIs around scheduling and payment for all of these different services. And instead, our current regulations in California are fostering the formation of cartels, the same problem that we had with the taxi industry, um, where there are these little walled gardens, services that are bundled together, and no way for consumers to easily choose the most efficient mode. So one of the things that San Francisco will be talking to our state legislative delegation about is how do we establish the right regulatory framework for all of these private mobility services that give cities the right tools to help manage the streets for the public good by fostering innovation, but also fostering competition and uh, supporting a lot of consumer awareness about choices. Um, frankly, I'm really inspired by the way that telecommunication industry was regulated, particularly in the 1930s, which took a very different approach than we've taken in the mobility space, where the federal government said, uh, we own the entire electromagnetic spectrum over the United States. We're going to use that electromagnetic spectrum in order to foster innovation and profit and expansion of technology. But we're going to do that in a way that serves the public good and promotes competition in the free market. We should do the same thing with our streets, using our streets as the limited renewable resource that they are, um, fostering innovation in them, but making sure that that innovation always serves the public good. Are you thinking that companies should be regulated city by city, or are you suggesting more of a federal uh, regulatory approach? So the, I mean, each unit of government has their role. So the federal government regulates the, the hardware itself so that that hardware can cross straight, uh, state lines. State of California regulates service. Um, and I don't want a situation where uh, cities are allowed to run amok and there are radically different rules from one municipality to another. There needs to be the right set of standardization, particularly around data so that the, the service providers aren't driven nuts and we don't have, and we respect, frankly, the, all the, the, um, the privacy rights of travelers. But cities need to be provided the right amount of flexibility so that we can manage according to different, slightly different definitions of the public good. Here in San Francisco, congestion is a really, really serious issue. We need to have tools to help make the transportation system more efficient. In rural jurisdictions, they have different considerations, including issues like uh, weight, so allowing them to be able to price their roads based upon the damage that autonomous Amazon trucks are creating on rural roads, super important to them. So what we need from the state, again, is the right bumpers to allow different jurisdictions in order to manage to their specific concerns while at the same time providing clarity and certainty to the market so that the service providers can focus on the stuff that they're good at. 
All right. Well, I guess we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate your time. Enjoyed the conversation. My pleasure. Happy New Year. Thanks again to Jeffrey Tumlin for joining us. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can find the show notes for this episode and all of our episodes on our Medium publication called Smarter Cars. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.